This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Muriel Schindler was recorded in November 2021. Extremely pleased uh, for this segment uh, to have for the first time with us uh, Mariel Schindler. She is an employment lawyer. She's a partner and the head of a team at Withers LLP. It's a law firm uh, and is a patron of Arvon, the writing charity. She lives in London with her husband and three children. And uh, this is her very first book, a fascinating family look uh, introspective called The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. This is an extraordinary story. Extremely pleased to have her here. Uh, Mariel, uh, technical trials and tribulations, but thank you so much for being here. How are you, my friend? I am very well. Many, many thanks for inviting me onto your show. Well, pleased to have you here. Let's uh, let's do this. Uh, I would like to talk about your law career, but I really want to. Would rather just I want to dive into this. Um, you spent uh, your adult life uh, trying to keep your father uh, a little bit at bay. There was a difficult relationship there. If you would, for our audience, again, the work is called the Lost Cafe Schindler. Would you give us a little bit of a setup of the background here? Uh, about this, and then we'll start to dive into detail as the interview unfolds. Sure. Okay. So um, let me start this way. So my father was a Holocaust survivor. He fled from Austria in 1938, age 13, and arrived safely in London. Um, He grew up to be a good-looking, charming, persuasive raconteur. However, he was also a liar and a fantasist. He was also a fraudster, and he went to jail for a bit. So that sets you up with, a, with the man and probably makes, uh, makes it clear why I had a difficult relationship with, with him when I grew up. So um, does, that, does that help? Very much so. And I'm curious when you say sort of fraudster and, and probably weaver of great tales, how much of that do you associate at all uh, with the unique background and the childhood that he had? It's difficult to know whether he would have been as he was in any event or whether the war caused him to be like that. Um, what, is, what is very clear to me is that when we were children, as we were growing up, he spent a lot of time telling us a lot of anecdotes. And these ranged from all sorts of things, the fact that he was there on Kristallnacht when his father was beaten up by the Nazis. He told us in great detail how you know, the Nazi thugs made their way into their flat and how his father was beaten up with a, using a toboggan, in fact, my father's toboggan. Um, now, that was a story that we grew up with, and you know, he used it to explain how traumatized he was by the war. There was only one problem with that story. My father was not actually present. He was safely in London. So that that gives you some sense of of, of the man. And he used that anecdote to seek help from psychiatrists, to get him out of the various legal scrapes that he he, he found himself in. Um, So that that was one of the stories. And then, in a sense, at the other end of the the spectrum, um, 
um, was a story that he used to tell that his 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 Jewish uncle was a doctor in in Linz in Upper Austria, and that as a Jewish doctor in 1907 he treated both Hitler, age 17, and Hitler's mother Clara Hitler, and that um, in later years when Hitler came to power in 1938 that his, his uncle was protected by Hitler and, in fact, not sent to the camps but allowed to emigrate to the U.S. And so, you know, that, that obviously seemed to be a completely fantastical story to me. Bizarrely, that was a story that actually turned out to be true. So I have a question for you. Again, he, your father said, uh, again, assumed that relatives related to him treated Hitler's mother. Yep. Franz Kafka, Oscar Schindler, uh, his wife, uh, Alma Schindler. Is that right? No, no, Alma yep. Schindler. You're correct. Yeah. So he, did he tell you or did he tell anyone that would listen to him about this? <laughs> I think he told anyone who would listen. I mean, he, he liked to claim kinship with rich and famous people. And some of them we were related to, some of them we simply were not related to. Well, the Cafe Schindler was a real place in Innsbruck. Yes. Um, documented, uh, th- that's well documented, and it was it was quite a popular place. Uh, served all kinds of wonderful pastries, I understand, and maybe some home distilled liquors, and oh, just sort of a, a, a just a nice gathering spot. So, share with us what's the relationship between your family and the Cafe Schindler, and. What, if the Cafe Schindler was real, does that tie into the story beyond being just a place? It, it does tie into the story because the cafe was founded by my grandfather in 1922 when my grandfather returned from the First World War, and he fought a really brutal war on the Southern Front, the Southern Front that was made famous in A Farewell to Arms, the Hemingway story. Um, and it was a war that was fought up in the mountains on near vertical slopes between the Italians and the Austrians. So having survived the traumas of that war, my grandfather returned to his hometown, to Innsbruck, and he, he decided to give his, his, his townsmen an oasis, somewhere to, to forget how, how traumatic the war had been and the loss of the, of, of the war, and somewhere where they could come and dance and they could drink good coffee and drink drink wine and, and as you say, spirits, uh, which, which they distilled, and, and, and eat incredible pastries and listen to jazz. So that was through the 20s and 30s. He had this incredible cafe that was essentially the epicenter of, of Innsbruck, a small provincial town in Western Austria. And that was all going swimmingly until, of course, the Nazis arrived. The Nazis forced him to sell um, the cafe to one of their number, um, a chap called Franz Hebel, who took on the cafe and turned it into a, a Nazi officer's drinking club. That went on for, for the seven, eight years that the Nazis were in power. Um, and at the end of the war, uh, when the Nazis had lost, um, the cafe was in fact restituted to my grandfather, who sadly only survived until 1952. Um, he died then, and my father then inherited the cafe, but he was not a good businessman. He managed to fall out with a lot of people, and the cafe was then sold, and, and seemingly, we thought, disappeared off, off the high street. But it lived on in people's memories. And when 10 years ago, a chap came to, to Innsbruck and decided to open a cafe in the very same building, no matter where he turned, everyone said to him, 
my friend, it has to be called the Café Schindler. And so he called it the Schindler, Schindler's Place, essentially. And it's now a thriving cafe again, and we'll celebrate its 100th anniversary next year. So the cafe itself was very much um, an eyewitness to some of the most brutal history of the, of, of the last century. You're listening to Lewis at Larger's truly Warner Lewis is always from the flight deck. I uh, got a good one going here with Mariel Schindler, who is a, an attorney by trade uh, in London. Uh, this is her first work called The Lost Cafe Schindler, uh, One Family, Two Wars in the Search for Truth. So, Mariel, uh, as, a, as a girl and growing up through adolescence and all, you heard these stories from your father um, at the time, I'm assuming, just purely you're going you're gonna to believe them because your dad is telling them to you. As, at what point did you start thinking to yourself, some of the math on these stories doesn't just seem to fit and work very well? I think as, as you grow up from childhood into adulthood, you become more questioning of the things that you're told by your parents. And I uh, decided to become a lawyer, I think in part as a reaction to the chaos that my father had lived in. And, um, and, and, and whenever he told these stories, I'd say, well, sure, you say we're related to Oscar Schindler of, of, of Schindler's List fame, but how are we related? And he could never tell me the details, so I always discounted his stories. So... As you did research for this, some of the research, you, you would have been a person. You would have been a resource. You had stories. You had maybe some family photo albums, and maybe some people were identified. Places were identified. Situations were identified. But tell us, tell us about the research you did here, and how did you go about either reconstructing stories, confirming stories, getting second sources to corroborate what your father had said, and as you move through some of these stories, some of the emotions you sort of went through. Oh, that's a long question. So the research process was about a three-year process. Um, when my father died in 2017, um, he, he died in a, in a cottage, and we, we went to clear out the cottage, as one has to do when, when your last parent dies. And it was filled from floor to ceiling with papers. My father had never thrown out a scrap of paper. And so I had this extraordinary treasure trove. Um, some of it was you know, very banal, but some of it was, you know, uh, extraordinary. I had documents covered in swastikas and full of Heil Hitlers. I had very old documents from my father's family. Um, so that was, in sense, a starting point. And I also had 13 quite extraordinary photo albums containing family photos going right back to pre-First World War, sort of 1910, 1912, Austria. And in those photos, I could see my, my, my family. So my family going off to war, my family celebrating, my family um, dancing in the cafe. And like a lot of photo albums, family photo albums, no one had written the names of the people in the photos under the photos. So I was curious, and that, in a sense, the photos were the starting point because I wanted to know who was in, who, who these people were, and what had happened to them. Obviously, knew my family was Jewish, but I'd always grown up with a very small family, partly because my father had fallen out with a lot of people. And so, part of the mission of this book was very much to find out the stories, verify what was true understand what had happened to the people in the photos and try and sort of 
I suppose, create a narrative out of that. I, from, from, the, from the family papers, I then went to archives in Austria. I travelled all the way sort of from the length and breadth of Austria, from to Vienna, to Innsbruck, down into Slovenia, where my grandfather had fought in the mountains, and literally walked up mountains, walked into museums, walked into archives, and did a lot of reading. And I think that was really the, 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 the sort of research journey, if you like. Did you, were you searching, so to speak, for one answer or what were you trying, what, what were you really trying to do? What were you trying to nail down or corroborate or confirm? Was it one thing or were multiple stories? And as if you could corroborate multiple stories, then maybe somehow your dad suddenly gets some renewed credibility. Oh, that's a very perceptive question. Um, I was trying to work out what, whether what he had told us was true or not. And as I said, in some ways, some things turned out to be true. The, the story about an uncle who treated, a Jewish uncle who, did, who treated Hitler turned out to be true, astounding, astoundingly. And I was then really shocked, however, when the, the other story about my father being there on Kristallnacht was untrue because it seemed so terribly wrong that one would lie about, about witnessing an event like that. But what's so interesting about memory, of course, is that I can't be sure now whether my father managed to convince himself that he was there or whether he just blatantly lied about it. Do you have siblings? And if you do, um, what were their thoughts? Or were they supportive? Or were they leave it alone? Or oh my gosh, there goes Mary. There's there she goes again. Tell us about that. The family dynamics. Um, I I was because my father had fallen out with a lot of people. I was very clear that I was only going to write this book if I had the full support both of my sisters. I have a younger sister and an older sister, but almost more importantly. I went out of my way to contact people with whom my father had fallen out. And I did that, obviously, very tentatively, reaching out very, very gently to people to see if they would be prepared to talk to me. And those first conversations were, I mean, quite extraordinary. I actually flew to, to, to Massachusetts to meet one, one person, and his opening shot, and this, I'd never met this chap before, to me as I, as I arrived at his house was, Yes, I remember your father. He was a crook and a shyster. Now, bear in mind, I'd, I'd flown 3,000 miles to meet him. It was a slightly astounding meeting. But he was then incredibly kind. He gave me photos I'd never seen before. We sat in his living room and tried to reconstruct our family tree together, and he was incredibly kind after we'd got over that initial, shall we say, awkwardness. Was your intent with doing this research to write a book, or is the book just the culmination of lots and lots of energy and lots and lots of work on your part? It's another good question. No, I, it started out as a private account. What I was literally doing was trying to nail the stories in my head and, and maybe write an account for, for our three children. And as I... I, I suppose pulled on each thread of the story more and more very interesting facts and anecdotes came together and as I spoke to speak people about it they started to say this is sounding like a real book not just something you're writing for your kids and um, and lo and behold it, it became a real book so I didn't set out with the intention of writing a, a narrative like this but it, it's what it's, it turned into and, and 
and I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of it in many ways because I've never done anything like this before. The war provides, and, and the warlike settings provides a backdrop, but underneath it all, take the war out of it, this is still a very powerful story about family and search for truth, is it not? Yes, it is. It is. I mean, you, you could have it without the very traumatic events of two world wars, um, but I think you, you have to accept that those world wars absolutely formed the people who, who were alive at the time and lived through them. And the interesting thing, of course, about the Second World War is that it still has echoes for the second and third generation because although I, I was born in 1964, so long, long after the war, and yet it still has, has tentacles that reach out into my present. So as you look, you look back on this, um, I'm just curious, are you satisfied um, with what you found out, the good, the bad, and the ugly? And how have your feelings or your perception of your father changed, or have they at all? What I think um, is interesting, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I have nailed um, the facts as well as I possibly can. I mean, there's always more that you can write. It's, it's a sort of endless thing, family research in many ways. But I'm happy that I have nailed um, the truth, if you like, insofar as it is possible to do that. And your second question is a very interesting one, which is, has my perception of my father changed? I think I was a very angry young adult in the sense that I was... I was disappointed that I didn't have the father I thought I deserved. My father didn't provide stability and, and all the things a normal dad would, would do. Um, you know, we lurched from financial crisis to financial crisis. We were constantly fleeing creditors and had bailiffs at the door. So that was, that was us growing up. You know, on the one hand, we lived in a, in, a, in a sort of expensive house, and then on the other, we were being evicted. So, I mean, it was, it was very turbulent as a childhood. And I think I was very angry about that. But now I think the writing of the book, in answer to your question about perception, I think the writing of the book has helped me be much calmer. I think writing is quite a cathartic process, a very therapeutic process. I'd highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in doing this sort of project. And I'm much calmer. And I also appreciate that my father grew up in difficult circumstances now. And I understand that what he gifted me was not assets or money. I mean, he died penniless, but he gifted me an incredibly rich and interesting story. What about your family? Do they share, do you think, this, after, I assume they've read this or at least read a yes, closing exactly. manuscript. What are their thoughts about all this? I think they're very, they're, they're very pleased. I mean, I think it's, when the, when the first sort of books arrived from the publisher, I found, we, you get your sort of statutory 12 copies from your publisher, and um, I suddenly found that every member of my family was in a different corner of the house having stolen a copy of the book and was reading it. So it was, I, I think they're, 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 they're pretty proud of it, actually, and it's quite, they, they quite like the fact that I finally got this stuff out of my system. Well, it is a fascinating, complicated, but wonderfully woven, uh, I say the word story, it, it is truth, but a wonderfully yeah. woven document. The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth by Mariel Schindler, who, again, by trade, is an attorney uh, in London and, and a lawyer. But uh, this is her first work, so the question becomes, of course, um, 
do you want to write again? And if you do, what might it be about? I loved the research and writing process. I really, really loved it. Um, I've got a few ideas. I think there are a lot of untold tales from that time. Um, I think you have to be sure that what you're writing is worth reading and and is another way of another good way of telling history and, and transmitting history to the next generation. So that's what I'm mulling over. Um, I think I've got some interesting tales to tell about Bohemia and, and Victorian London and all sorts of things like that, but I haven't quite formulated them yet. So, Mariel, before we get out of here, how can people pick up a copy of The Lost Schindler? And also, do you have a website, or how could people contact you if they wanted to find out a little bit more? Sure. I've got an author website, which is MarielSchindler.com, and um, so people are very welcome to, to contact me via that. I'm also endlessly Googleable, um, so um, that, that, that's, that's easy to do. And in terms of buying the book, um, all good bookshops, as they say, um, lots of independent bookshops are stocking it, as well as all the, all the normal ways on, on, on the Internet. Well, thank you so much for sharing this amazing, decidedly personal story and journey and uh, putting it together, uh, ultimately in the form of the Lost Cafe Schindler in our conversation today. And uh, best of luck to you, and we would certainly love to have you back again if that's uh, something you'd like to do. I would love that. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.